Welcome, Flight Suit Friday podcast listeners. This is Sam Hafenstein. I got Kenny Ingram sitting next to me. How you doing, Kenny? Good, sir. How oh, are what are you cracking a, a tasty beverage over there? Yeah, this is uh, actually left over from Captain Holzer. This is the uh, Wild Leap Alpha Abstract Double IPA. It's eight percent, uh, and as you know, I don't drink any beers that are less than six percent ABV. I, I think that's a good rule to live your life by. I've got a uh, Bell's Two Hearted Ale, American IPA, uh, one of my favorites. Really good. It's from Michigan. Uh, found it in the fridge. Don't know whose it is, and I appreciate you giving it to me. Thank you. You know what really grinds my gears? No, but I don't see you coming up with anything. What else do you get with the freaking program? And that, people, is what grinds my gears. Big Greg, what's grinding your gearbox today, buddy? I'll tell you what's grinding my gearbox, guys, <laughs> is rando words in checklists. How These so? rando words, yeah, yeah, like stuff that is not required in the checklist. It's uh, just taking up time that I could be yelling at co-pilots, you know, it's just wasted breath. <laughs> stuff like... Uh, OEI. How many times do we say OEI? Really? Like, come on now. Like, uh, there hasn't been an OEI switch in the cockpit since uh, Gen Xers were co-pilots like myself, you know? Like, let's move on. Um, ESS? Always stowed. Might as well give you some GMT on that bad boy because I don't know what it does, how to turn it on if it's not stowed. There hasn't been a mishap yet with an ESS, but I'm sure I'll get some more hands-on training that uh, is required. So let's just get rid of that one. Another one of my favorites, the mode four. <laughs> you lost him. Well, well, I guess that's what's uh, grinding Big Rig's gearbox today. Thanks, Big Rig. Thanks, Big Rig. Uh, all right, folks. Well, we're jumping back into the Motor Vessel Golden Ray Rescue. Uh, we left off talking to the crew, the 6531. They were the uh, duty crew that night. And then uh, in addition to them going out, there was the uh, crew that was supposed to be up in Charleston, but I believe they were they were down in Savannah at that time, the standby crew. Uh, they came out to uh, effect some rescues as well. So that was Lieutenant Commander Mike Vickers. We had Lieutenant Jeb Slick. Uh, AMT2, Jared Blitz, and AST1, Nate Newberg. Uh, looking forward to talking to these guys and, and hearing their story. All right, folks, just for a quick recap, we're talking with the crews for, that did the rescue on the motor vessel Golden Ray out of Air Station Savannah. Uh, you already heard an episode with the crew of the 6531. Uh, they picked up uh, a total of four people, and uh, following them was the crew of the 6544, who we have here on the line. So welcome, guys. Uh, we'll start with you, Mike. Mike Vickers, if you want to just say hello and uh, give us a little bit of background about yourself. Hi. Uh, yep. I'm Mike Vickers, and uh, stations currently at Air Station Savannah. I've been here three years, got another year to go. Uh, prior to that, kind of going back to the start of my Coast Guard career, I was OCS, then flight school, then Air Station New Orleans uh, for four years, then to hit Ron for three years. Then I went uh, overseas, did an exchange tour with the Royal Navy for three years, and then here to Savannah in 2018. Uh, originally from Sacramento, California, and then I went to uh, uh, college in Prescott, Arizona at Ember Riddle, and then joined the Coast Guard from there. Nice. Awesome. Welcome. And uh, how about you, Jeb? Jeb Slick, you out there? Yeah, I'm here, Sam. It's good to hear from you guys. Um, 
I'm just a high school to uh, academy guy, class of 2013. And I did a, yeah, I did a time time on the uh, the 110, the Nantucket out of St. Petersburg, Florida, and then flight school, uh, air station Savannah, and I just finished up my first year here in uh, New Orleans. That's awesome. Awesome. Hey, Jared, it's Kenny. Welcome to Flight Suit Friday, man. What's going on? How are you? I'm good. Great to be here. Uh, so I was all everyone else. Uh, I was on 87 in Pensacola for three years. Uh, a school. Then I got to go to Hawaii for four years, which was amazing. Uh, did Hitron for four years, uh, San Francisco for four years, then Savannah for one, and now I'm up at ALC at the end of the line, but now New Echoes for everybody. Thanks, thanks, for, that. thanks for your work yeah. and Echo stuff. And uh, oh, yeah. last Great. but not least, Nate, welcome. Hey, thanks. Uh, Nate Newberg, and I started out my Coast Guard career as a non rate in Cape May, went to Savannah as an airman. And then my first unit out of swimmer school was Sitka for three years. Went to Port Angeles, Washington for four years. And then down to Savannah for four years. And currently I am one of the rescue swimmer instructors at Aviation Technical Training Center here in Elizabeth City. Awesome. What's been your favorite uh, tour in Coast Guard? Uh, favorite tour. They've all got something, something special, but I think uh, Sitka has got the, the top of the list right now. Nice. Yeah, nice. I imagine the flying up there is just incredible, and the and the search and rescue you get to do. Uh, do you ever have any cases similar to the one that we're about to talk about? Uh, I did have a somewhat similar case uh, in Port Angeles, but uh, nothing nothing this this big scale that's gotten this kind of kind of publicity. Yeah. Um, well, I guess we'll just we'll start from the top down. Um, Mike, can you just explain? Uh, what what your crew compliment was, what you guys were doing that night, and, and uh, how you got the call, that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we were all at the hotel at that point. I think, Nate, you were already at the air station, right? Yeah, I was. Okay, and then uh, so I was in the hotel room on base, and uh, the CEO, our, uh, Charlie Padroni, our YM2, he called, called me, and he said, hey, sir, there's... Uh, uh, you know, a ship, big ship is rolled on its side. Uh, and they said there was 25 people in the water. Uh, so case details were kind of like, slim, like there weren't much at that moment. Uh, mm-hmm. but, and they hadn't directed to launch the second crew yet. Uh, but he kind of, he, I'm, you know, made the decision on his own. He's like, this sounds pretty big. So he called us to kind of just give us a heads up that this was going on. He's like, I think they'll probably launch you. And I was like, yeah, I think you're right. So, um, and then he, he called back, you know, I started to get ready and he called back and said, yeah, we're sending you out too. And I said, all right. You know, and so we all started to gather, you know, got our stuff out of the rooms, uh, and started heading back to the air station and then, uh, uh, started getting, you know, calls from, uh, ops, um, uh, and, uh, you know, figuring out what was going, you know, what to take, what, kind of what the plan was i could see that uh rob Minio's crew was already getting the aircraft out um and then ours was getting prepped and i think i remember uh nate getting a litter prepped for, for them if i remember correctly and then uh, we were also looking at like mass casualty rafts i don't think we had any at the time or, mm-hmm. or for whatever reason we didn't take any but uh um i do remember talking on the phone uh with uh, commander mathis uh saying you know i'm not signing for the aircraft i'm just i i pre-flied the aircraft before i went to bed so and 
kind of had everything set up, so I wasn't too concerned about signing for it. I knew, you know, what I could expect from the aircraft itself. So it was kind of just like, and I had that sense of, this is urgent. Like, this is, you know, this, something big is going on. So let's get the aircraft out and, uh, and get going. Uh, so that was, and the other aircraft was already spooling up at that point. So, so Mike, I might have missed it. What, what time is this when you're getting your crew up? This is uh, about one thirty in the morning, if I remember correctly. It happened just after midnight, uh, so it was about one thirty in the morning that we were we were getting spooled up. Okay, and uh, I think we talked about it briefly earlier, but so you guys are supposed to be uh, the Airfat crew, but you ended up in in Savannah. What was what was going on that caused that? Yeah, so Hurricane Dorian had just passed through in the area, and we lost power at the at the air facility in Charleston. Uh, and without the air conditioning, we had some mold issues going on in the air facility. So we had to, to shut it down while we did mold remediation. So by chance that kind of, that put both, uh, B zero crews at Hunter army airfield. Um, it just kind of worked out that way. Closer to the golden Ray or are you guys further away because you're at the air stay? closer it actually shaved off about 35 minutes of flight time okay. uh so the the uh, golden ray was to the south down in brunswick uh just off st simon's there uh it's about a 25 minute transit from savannah to get down there so mm-hmm. it saved us quite a bit of time quite a bit of fuel uh to you know be able to respond uh, that quickly and also that put the the two crews we were just about 25 or about 20 25 minutes apart uh arriving on team so it's, uh, you know, it was a, a fortunate situation, you know, fortunate that it did happen that way. Um, allowed us to get on scene quicker and, and uh, kind of do max effort uh, right away as opposed to a one hour delay between aircraft arrivals. Yeah. So you guys got this call coming in, uh, 25 people in the water, not really knowing exactly what's going on. Um, Nate, what were you thinking uh, from the rescue swimmer perspective? Uh, it sounded like you were helping the ready crew kind of get loaded up? Were you, were you thinking of stuff for your own crew as well? Yeah. So, uh, I was on that initial call and, and our initial call came in and it just, all they told us was that there's a boat capsized and the 25 people were in the water. So once, uh, Pastor Young and myself came into the shop to get our gear, we we're like, this is going to be big. Like let's grab our next raft and throw it on the plane. And we were trying to get, any more amplifying information that we could before, before the planes took off and all the crews got there. But we, uh, we considered taking the mass casualty raft, but they're not maintained by us and, and ours is expired. So we didn't take that one. We just took an extra crew raft from the shop that we had. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we put that on the first plane and then right before, right before we took off, uh, we got word that there might be, might be some injuries so we threw the litter on on our aircraft and continued on with that but uh initially we thought we're gonna be swimming a lot like we'll put this extra raft in the water and you'll take one half and i'll take the other and we'll just Mm -hmm. meet in the middle yeah did you guys uh were you guys planning to take off at the same time uh because the rest of my crew was over at the hotel and I was staying in, in the extra bed in the swimmer room, um, I knew that, that I, my crew was going to be delayed. So I was helping, I was helping Eric load up his plane, get anything ready that they needed to. And then 
then as the crew showed up, then we got, got our plane out and ready to go. Gotcha. Yeah. How about you, Jared? What was going through your head? Uh, yeah, just kind of think about what we're going to need. Uh, 26 millimeters a lot. So I think about space in the helicopter and where we're going to put people if we need to. Yeah. What's around, what everyone else needs to help out. I mean, just get the plane out and get it going. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I yeah, kind of didn't really know what, was, what you guys are getting into until you got out there. Right. Yeah. Just kind of standard star mind to like get it out, get what we need and see what we can do to help people. I mean, it's kind of just get out and go. Yeah. Nice. All right. Well, uh, you guys take off, you guys, you know, get in, you probably brief it up and you take off and, uh, Jeb, what, what's next after that? Um, yeah, so kind of, we were listening to the other helicopter talking to sector on the way down there. And I think they were probably just about getting on scene by the time we were getting airborne. So kind of heard them get on scene and, you know, just kind of run it through still. We didn't exactly know what was going to be the deal. So, you know, you break out that blue book and start running through a bunch of scenarios with a bunch of guidance that that thing's got for you and mm-hmm. kind of worked out like a little bit of a plan you know basically going to do whatever the other helicopter can't do or isn't doing since we thought there was going to be this mass casualty and uh yeah it's not it's not too far of a play like i think it's like 40 miles so you're getting there pretty quick right. um so um you know pretty soon i just remember the biggest thing uh i remember is just um you know this is a small coastal town with low-lying you know old homes and stuff like that and then you've got this 700 foot ship laying on its side so i don't think i think we're probably like four or five miles away by the time i actually figured out what i was looking at because i think the scale of the the scene was just kind of absurd yeah the other crew had mentioned that too that it was it sounded like it was blending in with the background of the city too so it's kind of hard to even discern it out of everything yeah i would agree just kind of like you know you're used to seeing a boat on uh, up and down and about half of it's underwater so when it turns on its side and it's sitting on the ground so that's a lot of metal it's pretty pretty big object uh larger than you're looking for one of those kind of one of my looking for situations yeah um yeah, absolutely especially with that roll on roll off the rows, the telling you know the stern from the bows really it was really difficult to mm-hmm. figure out which end we were looking at so, yeah that kind of all looks the same right yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, especially when it, you know they say the bridge, and we're like, "Well, where is the bridge?" Because it just all looked the same. Yeah. yeah. Once we found the propeller, once we found the propeller, that was a big help. That was a pretty good telltale. That was the back. <laughs> it's probably out of the water. Yeah, that's that's some cutter time there coming back. So I asked the <clears throat> the first crew that we talked to, and I'll ask you guys the same question. So probably a pretty surreal scene. You guys show up, and like you said, there's this giant um, Roro sitting on its side. How did you guys prioritize what needed to be done and, and in what order as you were processing the information? A lot of it had to do with where the other aircraft was. So we were getting information from the, the other boats on scene. There was, uh, I think, two tugs and then a, a Coast Guard 45 and uh, kind of getting information from them on where people were um, and then looking at where Rob's crew was hovering over and just trying to stay clear of them. So what could we, you know, who could we rescue without interfering with them? And so that was, we were getting that information that there was people in the bridge. So we, you know, all right, here's the bridge. You know, Rob's crew is more like a midships or towards the, excuse me, towards like the center of the the ship. So we moved up uh, to the bridge, which was um, at the bow and uh, hover up next to it, look inside uh, and, can see people moving inside there and you know they're telling us yeah they're in the bridge so 
that's when we start kind of setting up for a hoist uh, at that point. So did you guys have comms with the people that were in the, in the pilot house there? How did you know that there were people there or is it just from the chatter on the, the frequencies that you guys were talking? Uh, chatter from the tugboats. I believe the uh, harbor pilot, he had a radio on him, so he was able to talk. But otherwise, the radios on the ship were out at complete losses of power. Mm. Um, and there was a, he also mentioned that there was a ton of noise on the bridge from all the like fluid level alarms and things like that. Yeah. Uh, Jared, can you explain from a flight mech perspective what it looked like when you guys came into a hover over that? Because you know, I'm, I'm imagining the ship on its side, but like, is the bridge like 60 feet wide? And, you know, is there a boat underneath the other side of the bridge wing? Is it like, is it over open water over there? What, what did it actually look like to you? It's kind of, it's, it almost seemed like an easier hoist uh, from the perspective of it wasn't moving at all. It was basically like a ramp hoist uh-huh. just with the best thing to look at ever. Um, yeah, it was mostly the uh, bridge windows were more vertical. Um, I know me and Nate had talked about we were going to put them down and uh, the bow or in front of the bridge, I guess, there's a whole open area that could very well have been like a clip-off kind of situation. Um, so figuring out where we're going to put Nate down to get him into the bridge the easiest was kind of interesting. But the actual like physical hoisting was, other than the, the fact it was probably, I don't know, 60, 70 feet off the water, there was no movement to the boat, so it almost seemed easier than going to a small sailboat or something in open ocean. Yeah, and um, were you guys looking at the port side or the starboard side of the boat? Uh, the I'm guessing it was the starboard. The right starboard side was out of the water. Is that yeah, right, right, or, side, right or left? Yeah, side, <laughs> yeah. yeah <laughs> so I, I guess I'm curious about uh, like how what was the like on the left side of the, the port side of the boat? Like how far was that distance from if somebody walked out that bridge wing and wanted to jump down into the water or wherever a tugboat might be underneath? Was that even possible? Uh, I had a picture that I had a picture that one of the, the PAs or something sent me afterwards, and it was of the harbor pilot getting out uh-huh. and guessing that he's about six feet. There were at least like three or four like lengths of him down the remaining hose to the water level. Okay, so. yeah, so it was a decent job. Yeah, the, the boat was uh, when we got on scene. It was I think it was like seventy degree ish list. And it was kind of progressively lifting all the way to 90 degrees throughout this couple hours that we were on scene. So mm-hmm. that distance was getting smaller and smaller. But yeah, like Nick said, it was a it was a little bit of a drop. But once he got to the bridge wing, it was a safe drop. Yeah. Hey, Jerry, going back a little bit, uh, I know this was like two years ago, but what exactly did uh, you and Nate talk about? Like, how long did that conversation take of like, hey, where are we going to put you and what are you going to do when you're there? Uh, the conversation is actually pretty, I mean, we, we want to put him in the bridge. We found an open door that was now at the top of the bridge. Um, and just basically, instead of putting him on the deck, we're going to put him on the wall that was, you know, a flat surface for him to stand on. Uh, so I had a good, you know, five-foot circle I could aim for, which is a pretty simple hoist, again, if it's not moving at all. Um, I do remember talking about him trying to climb down the front because there was a walkway in the front of it. Uh, maybe climb that down like a ladder. I know he had talked about taking the crash axe to go through the front window. Uh, we just got, I was pretty confident that was an impossible task, but he seemed pretty confident. So <laughs> we'll let him take the crash axe with him. Uh, but the actual placement was, we were both pretty uh, experienced at this. So he needs to get in there. There's an open spot. Kind of aim for that. 
So it sounds like you guys are pretty committed to Nate getting off the hook. Nate, did you have any concerns of, hey, is this thing going to roll over more? What's going on in the pilot house? Yeah, totally. Like when I went down there, I think uh, it was, it might've been one of the radio calls that we got from the other, the other helicopter. Um, they said that there were people waiting where we were going to plan to hoist down to. When I got down there, I thought, all right, we'll just, I'll go down. I had the quick drop with me. We'll just do direct, bring them right back up. And then when I got lowered down, got some firm footing and was looking around and there's nobody there. Like, there, there was a fire hose there and a bunch of, of uh, mats from the flooring all over the place. So I, I looked down in the door and pretty much just saw the harbor pilot and the captain down there, and they were flashing lights at me and trying to yell at me and stuff. So I pretty much had no option but to unhook to figure something out. Okay, so you, when uh, they deployed you, the original plan was for you to just do a direct grab them and come back up. And then once you got there is when you made the on-scene uh, decision there to, to disconnect. Yeah, so right before I went out, like Jared said, I uh, I thought, well, maybe we can do a vert surface from the front after we pick up whoever's waiting in like this little sheltered area on the bridge wing. Um, I could climb down the railing on the front of the ship and break through the window to get the guy that we could see through the windows uh, that happened to be the harbor pilot kind of standing on like a compass stand or something. But when I got down on there and unhooked, I was like, all right, I've, I've got to come up with a new plan and, and figure something out here pretty quick. But I was the whole time I was worried, like, is this thing stable? Is it going to roll? When I first got on board, I thought like, since it was so dark, I thought maybe I had like some kind of vertigo or something because I felt like I was moving. And then later on I realized like, nope, this, this boat is still shifting, so we need to we need to hurry things up. Yeah, did um, I'm sure you guys had a risk discussion beforehand, but did you guys discuss specifically you coming off the hook, going into the pilot house, and uh, you know going into the ship that was listing over? No, we didn't specifically talk about it. Um, I didn't. I knew when I got on board and unhooked, I was like, there's no way that it would be safe to try to hoist through this door down to get these two guys in the bridge. Like it's just nothing but snag hazards. Uh -huh. So that's when, that's when I just made, made the call to come off and, and figure it out. Yeah. That, that makes sense that, uh, Mike or, or who was sitting right seat. Was it you, Mike or Jeb? Jeb was sitting right seat. Yeah. Jeb, did that change your mindset at all? Seeing, uh, you know, seeing Nate come off the hook. Uh, I, I do have some memory of us like talking briefly about trying to hoist down through that door. And it was pretty obvious that everybody thought that was a bad idea with me in the right seat. So I'm glad that that decision got made really quickly <laughs> for me. Um, but no, I mean, yeah, it, it was, it was kind of organic. Like the idea was just to sort of get Nate down there and talk to the guys and say like, how can we solve this problem? Like yeah. with where they were kind of trapped. So I think when he unhooked, I don't think it really surprised any of us, although, you know, it wasn't specifically brief. Like, you're going to go down there and unhook. But I think once he got there, helicopter 30 feet overhead, he was having a hard time talking to guys with everything. So Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it was, it was a pretty easy transition. He, he You know, he, he unhooked, and we just kind of stayed primed and ready, you know, back away 30 or 40 feet, something like that. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to make clear that I, I Jeb was sitting right seat because I did trust his, his ability to hoist it <laughs> by accident that he was sitting right seat. <laughs> I didn't trust, I didn't trust my ability to hoist down through that hatch. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, just thinking about, you know, we talk about cable rub and stuff like 
I could see how that could put Nate in a really bad situation. I mean, you just drift five feet forward and that cable snaps. Who knows what's, you know, underneath him and how far that fall would be. Yeah. Or, or for some reason, you know, if we uh, lose the bubble and climbing and he gets yanked as well. Um, yeah. There's a lot of risk in, in going through some kind of hatch like that while connected. So yeah, definitely could pin him. So Nate, what, what type of a uh, gear were you in a wetsuit or do you have boots on? Do you bring your fins? How'd you go down? Uh, initially, because we got that call that it was just 25 people in the water, I I had on a wetsuit and uh, wetsuit booties. So I was uh, once I got on board and started working, I I realized I was getting warm pretty quick. But uh, I think it was a much better better alternative than than wearing like my flight suit if I did have to go in the water. Like it was a little bit more nimble. Mm. But uh, as far as gear, like right before I went out the door, we we did see the, the fire hose there before we hoisted and I had just happened to throw some, some basic climbing gear in my swimmer bag from, from previous experiences. And I grabbed those, threw them in my pocket and I was like, well, maybe I'll use these. And, uh, and so that was pretty much all I had. So kind of like a paper clip and some bubble gum. That's <laughs> about it. MacGyver. So did you have any uh, Coast Guard ropes training at any of your previous units or even at Savannah? I, I was very, very fortunate. And I, I actually called up my old chief that I had uh, in Port Angeles. He'd since retired. And I, I made a point to thank him for sending us to, like, to these schools. He sent me to a uh, high-angle rope rescue school. I was part of a a mountaineering uh, team in Greenland a couple times. And I was able to get some really good training that directly correlated to, to this case. And without like, without good chiefs that fight for you and send you to these trainings that are kind of out of our, out of our normal bubble. Um, I don't, I don't know that we'd have the same kind of success. Like I talked to a lot of guys in the shop when I got back and they're like, thank goodness it was you, not me. I wouldn't have known what to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, especially if you're a brand new third coming out of a school, I mean, that's a whole different case for somebody like that on duty versus somebody like you who's had that prior training. And I think you can speak that probably for the pilot's perspective too. I don't know if uh, Mike or Jabby, you guys have been through AHARs or HATS or any of that kind of advanced training, but I certainly think that's pretty helpful. Uh, yeah, and I, I've not been through ARs or half, but uh, my prior, uh, like in my civilian flight training, I did a lot of uh, high altitude helicopter training in, in Arizona. We we're at five thousand feet flying mm-hmm. Robinson, so just kind of understanding some of the you know power limits and, and things like that. And there was a one thing that did stand out to me while we were hoisting over the ship was that. Uh, you know, we're, we're over basically a, a surface that's sloping at about 70 to 80 degrees. And that at that point, the, the rat out becomes uh, somewhat useless. It's not very helpful. It's giving you, if you're trying to hold a rat out altitude you, over the sloping surface as you move back and forth, as you get conned around, it's giving you bad information. So I do remember telling Jeb, like, hey, just kind of ignore your rat out. Look at your references outside, yep. uh, you know, pick references on the ship to to uh, hold an altitude. Uh, so those little things where uh, I've had that a few times over my career where you, you go, okay, we're kind of at the limits of this instrument or this system. Um, and how do we make it work for us? Yeah. Oh, that's great. So, 
Um, we're on the boat or Nate, you're on the boat here. Um, you're looking down in and, uh, what's, what are your next thoughts? You brought down an ax. So are you going to try and go through one of the windows? Yeah. So I, I grabbed the crash ax that's right behind the co-pilot seat right before I went out yep. thinking like I'd, I'd break the window and have the guy by the window climb out and climb the railing back to the top, like a ladder with me. And, uh, once I got down on, on board, uh, everything changed. It was super loud with, with the tugboats, with all the other boats around there, helicopters flying and everything and alarms going off. I'm trying to shout down through the doorway, which is pretty much 90 degrees looking straight through the bridge to the other door. Yep. And I couldn't hear anything as far as like trying to make contact with these guys. And so I made sure that the hose was, was properly anchored off. And, uh, I ended up rappelling down pretty much rappelling down into the bridge to make contact with the captain and the Harbor pilot. And once I was inside, I was able to, to talk to him a little bit better. And so I told the Harbor pilot, I was like, Hey, here's what I want to do. I want to come out on the outside of the ship. I'm going to break that window by you. And then you climb out with me. And he's like, good luck. This boat is pirate proof. And these are bulletproof windows. So you're not going to get through here. <laughs> so right. I was like, all right, that plans out. Let's come up with a new one. But yeah. he told me, uh, as I was hanging there off the hose, talking to him, he's like, Hey, this is the captain. He says he's got three more guys or four more guys in the engine room. Um, and he doesn't speak very good English and he doesn't want to come off the boat. I'm like, awesome. So tricky situation. Oh, the, yeah, the Harbor pilot, he was wearing a life jacket. So I was like, well, let's try to try to maybe get you up to me. And then we could just hoist from the top. The captain was kind of in part of like the control panel area of like the, the bridge. Mm -hmm. And he, he was in a much better, like stable position than the Harbor pilot who was just kind of holding onto a, a railing and his feet were on like a compass stand. So was the Harbor pilot higher up on the bridge than the uh, captain of the vessel? Uh, no, he was a little bit, he was a little bit lower. He was pretty much right in the center of the bridge. Okay. I gotcha. Um, so I asked him if he could climb up to me at all. And he was like, there's no way I can, can climb up this pole. If you can give me something to climb, I can try. And so I retrieved the hose that I was hanging off of and swung it over there. And he grabbed onto it and tried to climb up the hose and it was just too steep. So he couldn't make it. So he went back to his little perch that he was on mm-hmm. and I said, okay, let's try this. Cause he was wearing a life jacket. I radioed out with the, the in-ear comms radio setup that we, that had just come out previously. Yeah. And I talked to, I talked to the plane and the crew and I was like, Hey, tell the boats down below that I'm going to send a guy out the bottom, which that that piece of equipment was awesome as far as like being able to hear what the what the crew what my crew is saying they were giving me updates on how much time they had left how much fuel stuff like that um, you're talking about the bone mic right is that what you're using yeah yeah i've heard yeah. great things about that that's awesome and uh so i was like hey just have a have a boat ready at the bottom because i could see the boats like kind of nose in and then go back out a little bit through the other door at the other side so because the harbor pilot had a life jacket on and he was in a worse spot, I decided that he needed to get out of there 
or get to a better spot first. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, use this hose like like a rope in gym class and just slide down to the bottom and then keep using the rope and slide out through that bottom door and I'll have a boat there waiting. There were there were boats everywhere. And so he agreed and and he got down to the bottom and said, hey, I'm out of hose. There's still another big old drop here. So I had to retrieve the hose again and then eat it behind like the center console of the bridge and out through that door so that he was able to slide down to the water level. So I'm assuming that he was able to just basically Spider-Man or starfish to something else while you reconnected the hose to get him all the way down. Is that what you're saying? No, he made it down to the bottom of the bridge. I guess it would have been the the left side of the bridge. So he's standing on the windows down there. I got you. So he's good and stable. He just has another 20, 30 foot drop down to the water level. Okay. I got you. Uh, if we could just, we'll just pause right there for a second. What you're telling us is crazy. And I can't imagine, uh, what was going through your head. Mike and Jeb, Jared, like, what were you guys thinking? How much was he talking to you guys? Uh, quite a bit. So we were, um, he was giving us updates, and I would, I'd call him every, like, five to ten minutes and I'd just give him a, an idea of what our bingo was and, uh, you know, where we were sitting and um, just holding that hover, watching him. Uh, I was in the left seat, so I couldn't couldn't see very well, but um, from the, you know, Jared and, and Jeb could see, so they could probably tell you a little more. I was mostly handling the comms, and um, it, we, I got had an idea like of what kind of what he was doing, but not like the full, you know, not the full picture. So, but Jared and Jeb, can y'all talk to that? Yeah, I think uh, you know the biggest thing we were doing is it was just kind of standing in the back of our head, like how potentially unstable uh, the boat was. So I think all four of us were just kind of mentally caged on like we should be in a position to go grab Nate real quick if if stuff starts to move, and just kind of monitoring the the status of the boat and everything like that, just kind of, keep, kind of keeping an eye on that list. And then the other, only other thing, uh, we, we really thought we were doing to be helpful is just kind of utilizing those landing hover lights to, uh, illuminate because there was no light in the bridge. Um, just kind of avoid people's eyes, but, uh, try and give Nate some, some light to work. Uh, and then Jared was kind of, kind of hand, hanging out back there, giving some good conning commands and, uh, just keeping the SA up. Yeah. That light was critical. Yeah. So Mike just sent me, uh, a picture that uh, shows the vessel laying on its side and it has like little arrows to like ants of like Nate and where the captain and the um, bar pilot were. So I don't know, Ryan, if we can get that picture, but it just really puts it into a lot of perspective of how um, incredible this rescue was. Um, so, so jumping back to you, Nate, at this point, at any time hit, were you like, man, I, I might be in a little too deep in this one. I, I might be exceeding my capabilities here. Uh, you know, when I first went down, I was like, all right, what what in the world am I going to do here? But uh, as I was hanging on the hose and could feel the, the ship shift more, I'm like, all right, we, we need to do this quickly. And if something doesn't happen quick, then things could go belly up really fast. So... That was, that was pretty much all that was in my mind was just like, figure something out and do it quick because who knows when this, when this thing might turn over. The kind of funny, the, the first thing that I thought when we flew up was, uh, about an old movie called the Poseidon adventure. And it's pretty much a cruise ship that flips upside down. So to get out, you have to go down or go up to get, get out. And I was like, I hope this thing doesn't roll over. I hope this thing doesn't roll over. Yeah. 
Yeah, this is this is a great picture because I was imagining you like Indiana Jones swinging in midair, hanging on to the fire hose with your feet off of everything. But it sounds like you might have you did you kind of walk down and find one of the consoles to stand it on when you were kind of directing traffic in the in the bridge. No, I was I was hanging off the hose. I used <laughs> okay. I was I was full on hanging off the hose. I used two uh, two pieces of climbing equipment called Prusik loops so that I could use the hose like a rope and then descend the rope or ascend the rope using these these little loops. Yeah. And so I was I was in a stable spot and I was I was confident in my ability to to do that that part. The the problem solving stuff came after I got the harbor pilot out to try to get the captain because one, he didn't want to come off and two, he was in a, a harder spot as far as like getting him to safety. Like he was in a safe spot where he was at as far as being stable. Like he wasn't going to slip and fall mm-hmm. like the harbor pilot would have been, but it was a harder spot to do like a pickoff. So that's, that was the, that was the thinking part of it. Yeah, good thing that uh, fire hose was well maintained. Did you do a quick inspection on that thing before you just tied it off and <laughs> dangled from it? I I definitely double checked how it was tied off and uh, made sure that that was that was good and strong. But I was confident that that if it can hold that much psi for for water, that it could hold a hold a little old swimmer like me. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, all right. Well, what's next? So you're sitting there. What, what problem did you solve? How'd you do it? So I, uh, I got the rest of the hose retrieved and out through the opposite door so that the Harbor pilot could slide down to the water level and, uh, pretty much slid down the hose just like a rope mm-hmm. and onto one of the small boats down there. Nice. And so once he was, he was gone, then I was like, all right, I got to figure out how to get the captain up. So it took some coercing with me down there. It was it was really loud. There's alarms going off everywhere, and without the the hover lights and everything from the helicopter, like it would have been super super dark. And all I had was a chem light, so that didn't help a whole lot. But I told him, I pretty much told the captain, I was like, "Hey, you got to come off so that you can tell us where we need to go to find your other guys because we don't know the inside of the ship." knowing knowing pretty well that we weren't going to be going inside this ship because it was 11 stories or whatever or 11 decks down to the engine room yeah but anything anything to get him to kind of like relax a little bit and listen to my direction I thought would work so he he was like okay and so he couldn't there wasn't a way to climb the the hose like just hand over hand it was it was too small and, and too steep. Mm-hmm. So I retrieved the hose again and ended up tying, tying big loops in it, like not about an arm's length in between each one. And I did that until the loops got down to the captain. And there was a lot more stuff that could have fallen or that he could have fallen onto and hit on the way down. So I didn't like the idea of sending him down the hose like the harbor pilot. And he wasn't wearing flotation, so that would have been harder in the water as well. Yeah. Um, so I told him, like, hey, use these loops like a like a ladder. Put your foot in there and just stand up in it and then go to the next one, stand up in it, and come up to me. So I did that, 
got back out of the bridge. And when he was at the doorway, grabbed him and pulled him up. And then from there, uh, signaled, signaled that I was ready for pickup. I ended up putting him in the, in the quick strop because I had it down there with me. So I just signaled ready for pickup and, and the crew, they, they had told me, they're like, Hey, we're getting low on fuel. We're, they were giving me updates and they're like, we're going to have to go here pretty soon. So thankfully got out of there in time. And when I signaled, I stood there and I honestly, I cannot say enough positive stuff about everybody on our crew. Like that was some of the best hoisting I've ever had. Super, super on point. I held my hand out for the, for the hook coming down and Jared put that hook right in my hand. Like I didn't have to step one step to the right, to the left, anything. Like I just held my hand out there and it was right in my palm. So that's awesome. That's got to be a, a good feeling, like a confidence booster to know that, Hey, when I, when I call Ray for pickup or, Hey, I need help. Boom. There's the hook and you're out of there. Yeah. Yeah. I had, I had complete confidence in, in those guys for sure. So how much time had elapsed from you disconnecting to the hook back in your hand? I have no idea. <laughs> it was, it was probably kind of good still. Yeah, it was probably about thirty-five to forty minutes uh, from from when he went on to the Golden Ray to when we picked him up. So it wasn't it wasn't long, and I think it's uh, it sounds like a long time, but uh, the I think you know it's one of those situations where uh, when you when you look at you know, oh yeah somebody could have come up with that solution like yeah but could they have done it in thirty to thirty you know thirty-five forty minutes while helicopter is telling them every five to 10 minutes that they only have, you know, first 30 minutes and 20 minutes and 10 minutes left. And that's, uh, you know, the, the challenge of it while on a, what's amounting to a, a moving surface that's, but, you know, not only is it moving, but at risk of rolling over, you know, we, we weren't sure was it still at risk of rolling over. Yeah. Jared, did you feel a sense of pressure to get, uh, uh Nate up there pretty quickly then with all that going on? I would say pressure. Like I saw him come out, call for the hook, and I was just ready to get the hook down to him. I mean, I was watching fuel as well with everybody else, and I know we probably had one good shot, and then maybe another one or two if we really had to. So, yeah, I mean, training kind of kicks in. You just put the hook where it needs to go. Yeah, that's a classic, Jared. I know. I, 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 know <laughs> like, I know you well. Nothing ruffles your feathers. <laughs> and San Fran loved it. I mean, you're just happy-go-lucky. You always have good things to say and super confident. So you're just like, oh yeah, it's pretty easy. You know, just put the hook right in his hand. No yeah, big deal. done this a million times. No big yeah. deal. You need to, you give it to him. That's easy enough. <laughs> oh, that's, that's good. Uh, did you guys as a crew in the, in the helicopter have a discussion about, um, leaving Nate on scene? Uh, we, we definitely discussed it. And I, I think all the, at least for me and I think for all of us, it was like, uh, it was it was I think too much risk like to yeah. just not knowing not having somebody to be able to come in and immediately pick him up um, that was my concern where it was like, yeah, like I don't want to leave him in a situation where if he needs us we, we can't get to him you know in 30 seconds like we have to be there so um, that and that was kind of my the updates on the fuel was like hey you know this is how much time you have um because I, I don't feel comfortable leaving you on scene. Uh, that's what was going through my head. And um, so that, uh, you know, not knowing what he was doing, like fully understand what he was doing. Um, you know, I didn't want to get too much into, into Nate's head. I wanted it. And just so I tried to keep it 
to just giving him fuel updates or time updates um, and not, you know, trying to second guess or, you know, the, the classic sector is wondering what's going on and mm-hmm. you're like, hey, just standby sector. Yep. You know, let, let the rescue swimmer do what he does and then we'll, we'll let you know once, uh, once we have some time. Yeah, once we have information to pass, we'll give you that information. It also really helps. I mean, the airport was basically within sight, so I know we were all really confident going lower bingos if we needed to, having been able to see the airport. It's like, all right, it's right there. You know, we got time. So yeah. That really helps with the... Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a yeah. Big, big confidence booster. Uh, Nate, I got another question for you. So how far down into the bridge did you repel? Cause you mentioned tying the, uh, the loops in the, in the rope below you and then having him come up and then you climbed out and then you helped him the rest of the way. Was that like, were you like five feet into the bridge or were you down a ways? Uh, it was, it was probably around, I don't know, maybe about 10, 12 feet down into the bridge. Okay. It was right at the top of, uh, well, what was now the top of like the bridge console is about, the farthest that I got in there. Uh, my biggest thing was trying to make contact to be able to communicate with them because it was so loud. Like it, it was just everything sensory overload. So you had to take, take some of that out of the mix. Yeah. How'd you climb back up those 12 feet? Were you just hand over hand Chuck Norris style up the rope or? No, I I wish I could say that I'm (laughs) good enough to do that, but, uh, no, I, I utilize that climbing gear and, uh, and use that, to, to climb up saved a lot of effort and probably was much quicker than, than trying to just muscle through everything yeah you're making some great plugs for for ropes courses and i mean I th- it's incredibly important you ask any of the swimmers here at the stand team and they absolutely agree like that it's a game changer in in some cases especially like the one you just had cool um all right well you pick up uh the captain and to the airport you go and then, then what at that point, did you know everybody was rescued or did you have further tasking? We knew that not everybody had been rescued. There was still, the boats were still making rescues. And then, uh, at that point, Rob Mignot's crew was already at same, same time as getting, uh, getting more fuel. So we, uh, proceeded over to the airport, landed, uh, and then got out. Rob was spinning up again, uh, to go back out. So I, walked over to his aircraft, plugged into the ICS, kind of did a quick huddle um, and to come up with a, a plan as to how we were going to approach it uh, from there. So, mm-hmm. uh, And what we decided was we would take only enough fuel or uh, enough fuel that basically once we arrived on the scene, we were ready to hold it. Uh, and then we would kind of ripple from there. Basically, he would go out, do as much hoisting as he could, and then as soon as it I think we kind of, I think, agreed on about a half hour stagger. So at a half hour, we would get spooled up and go so we would have a, a constant, you know, air presence over the over the ship. Yeah. Um, and then I also remember kind of like a funny aside is that the, his co-pilot, Max, uh, sure enough, that was his very first star case ever. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, said, I was like, Max, you've, you've peaked. This is this is the best as good as it's gonna get in your career. So Yeah, we you know, uh, uh, affinitively affectionately call him now DJ Max Cherno, as he was calling himself on the radio over there. Um he, I think he said he was only a week or two out of T course too. He's pretty brand new. Yeah, yeah. So it was uh it was an interesting dynamic uh for you know, between the crews in terms of um Rob and Max 
paired up together and then uh, Jeb and I, in terms of, you know, I kind of had the luxury of taking the, the left seat in a way. And I say that it was a luxury to take the left seat as an aircraft commander because I could manage the case while Jeb flew the aircraft, uh, yeah. which uh, is very, hand, you know, it can be very helpful. Uh, so it was, uh, so we did that. We And then they took off. Um, I made some calls back to base and to, to sector, back to the air station to sector uh, to get information and, uh, you know, set the aircraft. And then they asked uh, me to interview the captain to kind of get some information from him. So mm-hmm. the, the captain and I uh, got into a, a fire truck that was there on scene at the airport. There was ambulances and, and fire trucks there. So I got into this fire truck with him and uh, on a conference call with uh, Captain Reed, the sector commander, and then uh, with uh, Commander Mathis, who was taking the ops calls, mm-hmm. uh, trying to figure out uh, what was going on. So I started to talk to him and trying to ask for, you know, did he have blueprints or plans or could he get those uh, for us and and where were the the four remaining crew that he was concerned with. And, you know, said they were in the engine room. Uh, so and he said, uh, I, uh, he, he mentioned that the security team, uh, for the ship, they have those plans for the ship. And I was like, all right. So, and the second fan are sharing this too. So kind of going on there, all right, all right, let's, can, can we get those? And the other piece too, this was a head count, making sure, you know, all right, how many people were on the ship? How many, you know, how many crew were there? There was a harbor pilot in the crew. So it was like, all right, is there 25 or 24? Kind of making sure we had got that number correct. And then making sure that as the people got picked off or taken off the boat and then also taken to the station or to the, to, uh, you know, ashore that we we're ensuring our head counts were correct. So, and then, all right. And then back to, all right, where are these four guys? And they said, all right, well, they're in the engine room. And I asked them, well, how many decks down is the engine room? I think he said around eight decks down and, uh, um, yeah, it was de- in my head, I was definitely a sinking feeling in a way, you know, no pun intended, but it was that very, like, this is not good. Like, you know, we knew the ship was on fire. We could see smoke coming out of the ship. Um, and it kind of started to lose a little bit of hope, um, uh, for, for them in terms of this, this is going to be very difficult. And the, the question is that, Sector had reached out to us at one point or flights asking if we could pick up a ropes team mm-hmm. to put on the ship. And I'm looking at the ship and I'm looking at, you know, thinking about, all right, how would you even make entry into this? First of all, how do you even make entry? And it's completely blacked out. It's on fire. And then you got to get, you know, this is real life pitfall at that point um, to, to reference a good eighties video game dating myself here. But you know, they're, <laughs> how they and i just i thought about it and you know i think as a crew too we're like there's no way and um that a team could get from uh you know the outside of the ship uh make their way down the ship on its side somehow make it way into the engine room and in total darkness yeah uh, it's just the risk yep yeah the risk is just too much so at any rate, we get that information from the captain and, you know, I kind of close it out with the sector commander and ops and, you know, then and say, all right, you know, we good. And there's, yeah. And then from there we start making the plan to launch back out again. Gotcha. I mean, it's pretty commendable the the captain to want to stay on board, but it sounds like Nate did a good job of saying, Hey, 
you're far more valuable talking to you in a fire truck, talking to how to get those people out of there and the, the, you know, blueprints for the ship. So that's awesome. Yeah. Um, Jeb, quick question for you, man. How did it feel uh, wiggling the sticks for 40 minutes in the dark, trying to hold a precise hover? Uh, I mean, it was, it was definitely like kind of nothing like I had done before in terms of just the hover references and, you know, it's just weird. You're 200 ish feet above the water and 30 or 40 feet above the boat. So it was, uh, I definitely think, uh, Mike helped kind of calm me down a little bit when we first got on scene there and, you know, just think of it like a ramp poise, that kind of stuff. Just those little bit of encouraging words kind of goes a long way in terms of that sort of emotional on scene initial feelings. Yeah. Um, do you have any major lessons learned that, that you'd want to share with other first tour? I know you're in your second tour now, but you know, first tour people who might find themselves in a position somewhat like this. Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of definitely like struck home. Like you can't, you can't use hub log all the time. Like practice off hub log all the time, practice those high hoists just to get used to your rates at, the, at those higher altitudes and stuff like that. Um, so I've definitely put all that stuff into my uh, repertoire of, of training flights and stuff like that. And uh, I think that, I think that that stuff was very valuable uh, just in terms of stuff that you can practice before you have to do something crazy like that. Yeah. And I did, I did want to just, sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to throw out like another kind of detail that I think it's overlooked and Mike Mike touched on it, but like that whole time that we were on scene with Nate, uh, not only was, was Mike kind of handling our little our little portion of the case, but I think the picture that he was able to paint for Sector by kind of consolidating information from, uh, you know, X number of tugboats, towboat US and the station boats and actually starting to kind of compile that on scene picture. Uh, I, you know, I learned a lot from just kind of watching him work the radios and, uh, and build that picture and essay and, and stuff that, uh, that, you know, ultimately was needed to, to get that head count and, and continue the case. So yeah, I just want to plug that and say, yeah, I that was an important part too. Yeah. Why did you guys decide to stay in the hover as opposed to doing like a 70 knot orbit to save fuel and kind of lighten the workload pilot workload? Yeah. It was, it was just that, uh, you know, that, you know, it's kind of the fact that the boat's been laying on its side for the last two years uh, makes it seem like it wasn't going to roll over. But I think it's safe to say that most of the folks on scene were pretty concerned that this thing was just going to continue uh, progressively rolling over. Uh, so we had just discussed, like, yeah, we could save a little bit of gas, but to be in the position to make that pick up immediately, like, you know, a matter of seconds versus a matter of minutes, uh, we, again, with that risk of that boat potentially continuing to, to lift until it, you know, maybe violently flipped, uh, we want to be there for, for Nate as quickly as possible while he was doing his stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you guys, uh, can you still see it right now? Have they completely disassembled that boat? For I guess Mike would know since it's, he's still there. Yeah, it's still, there's still, uh, I think, it's just like a portion of it, not much of it. I would say probably about 20% of the of the ship is still sitting there. Uh, they're working to cut, cut and remove that last bit of it. So, and also, like for what Jeb was talking about in terms of the, you know, the hoisting and kind of be encouraging. And one thing it's actually a, a, that I learned at Hitron, uh, which was uh, breathing control. Honestly, it was uh, when you're doing gunnery exercises, you really had to get in sync with the gunner. And uh, what I would do is really focus on my breathing control. And uh, at, at one point as we're over the golden ray, I could feel the, the aircraft started to, to shake a little bit, a little bit of stick stirring. So I, yeah, I know it's turbulent. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So uh, I, I 
to help Jeb get rid of that turbulence. I uh, just said, hey, you know, take a deep breath and then exhale <laughs> and really focus. And and I, I use that actually with other co-pilots too. Is that, um, and I do it myself where it's like, as you get into a hoist over a boat, as you move in over the boat, sometimes you'll really um, start to really focus on the boat too much and you kind of forget about breathing control and uh, just taking a deep breath and exhaling can really help you kind of smooth out that, that uh, the controlling of the aircraft. So that's just, just for my hit round days. I mean, that's, I wish I knew that in New Orleans, <laughs> but uh, uh, that's something I took away from there and it, it, it has stuck with me ever since. Yeah. Um, well, wrap, wrapping this stuff up, um, Jared, what kind of lessons learned you got? Uh, anything you want to share with the fleet or anything you took from this case? I mean, just watching how we've been training work really well was really nice to see. Um, for Flymex, it's just about staying calm and staying focused. I don't really, I mean, training really helps and having a good pilot really helps too. So that's a bonus to have up front. Yep. Um, how also, would- just a fun side fact as well, that picture you're looking at was taken by me during this whole thing. So, Dude, you have a new career. <laughs> Photo credit. J right? Blitz, we got it. <laughs> Photo credit, J Blitz. I've been trying to get credit for these pictures the whole time. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, last but not least, Nate, uh, uh, you did you did all the MacGyvering down there. What kind of lessons learned do you have or, or things you'd like to highlight for anybody else listening to the podcast? Uh, I think... I think the best thing from it was uh, just the whole team cohesion, not just with our crew, which was awesome, and the other crew, which was awesome, but everybody, everybody played a role in this in this case. Like all the small boats, the tugboats, the DNR, like everybody that was on scene. And if you took one of those pieces out of that puzzle, like I don't think that we would have had the same success at all. Mm-hmm. Like. Hands down, hands down, with all the people working together to to do one thing, it it's a miracle that everybody survived. Yeah. But uh, aside from that, uh, I think that, like I spoke about it before, uh, the high angle rope stuff definitely played in to the success from my point of view, and uh, things that things that I took away that I told the shop as I debriefed the case and stuff was, uh, the in-ear comms. It was pretty new at the time. A lot of guys like were starting to use it. Um, but that was super valuable and, and I know it's been improved upon since then as far as like durability, but that, that tool was awesome. Yep. And then as the case continued with the other crew, uh, when, when we debriefed before, uh, before the other plane took off, the other swimmer and I, we, we kind of hashed out what each of us had done and came up with like a game plan. Should we have to go back for those four guys? And something that we had just trained like a week prior was breaching equipment mm-hmm. for in preparation for hurricanes. And if we were going to have to get access into the boat, we, uh, we utilized some of the breaching equipment that we learned from the fire department and borrowed some of their gear at the airport. But we didn't end up needing it, but just the, the option to like know how to get into like ships like that, like how to breach through that glass would have been super helpful instead of the little crash axe. But yeah, um, you would have been there for a long time. Uh, yeah. Well, I, uh, 
I got to throw this out there for everybody listening. You were meritoriously promoted for this case to, to first class. So huge congratulations. I don't know how often that happens, man, but from, from what you did there, it was incredible. Nice work. Thank you. Yeah. Um, all right, guys, we really uh, appreciate you guys taking the time to uh, come in here and, and talk to us, at least over the phone. And we look forward to, to talking and hearing stories from, from you and other good coasties out there in the future. Yeah.